dear Christian friends, if you've been coming to worship here at Foundation for a while, you've probably heard the topic of joy come up before. And there's a reason for it. The, the, the word joy or rejoice or joyful is used over 300 times in the Bible. That's a lot. It's obvious something that God wants for his people. He wants us to have joy. And yet it's important to understand what we mean when we say God wants us to have joy. Because in our, our world, the Bible uses the words joy and happy as kind of synonyms, right? The word blessed is in there too. They all kind of mean pretty similar things. But in our, our modern American culture, in our language today, they tend to mean different things. Joy is something different. Happy, well, we know what happy is, right? Happy is, is a feeling. It's an emotion. And it's it's in the moment, right? It's based on the immediate circumstances of my life right this second. It's why you could come in this morning and, and go, boy, I, ooh, I'm really, really jiving for this hot cup of coffee this morning. Maybe I'll grab half a donut. And then you put it down and you didn't get back to it until 15 minutes later and you go, oh, I'm not really happy about this anymore because the coffee's kind of lukewarm and I don't feel like a donut. It's funny how we go happy, not happy, happy, not happy, right? From, from minute to minute even, sometimes. Happiness is this emotion that, that runs based on the immediate circumstances, but joy, joy is different. And this morning it's important to understand what joy is. And so that's our first takeaway this morning. Joy is not an emotion. Joy is an attitude. Joy is an attitude that looks beyond this immediate moment and sees what's coming. See, that's the reason why James, James the brother of Jesus, James who wrote the book of James in the Bible, could say these words, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, raise your hand if you think going through a trial, a difficulty, a, a challenge, pain, suffering is happy. Stop it. Nobody here thinks that, right? Nobody is, yeah, trials are good. No. Nobody's excited to go through a, a challenge, a difficulty, pain, suffering. And yet God says they can be for our good. They are for our good. He always uses them for our good, and so we can have joy in them. James goes on to say the joy, the, the trials that we face, God uses them to strengthen and develop and mature our faith. So while it's not happy in the moment, I can see beyond the pain and the suffering and the difficulty, and I see, I see God, that he's going to use and direct this purpose. Or consider the words that we, we heard in our, our scripture reading from Philippians 4 just a few moments ago. They were written by the apostle Paul, a man named Paul who was in a Roman prison writing to persecuted Christians. Paul was pretty sure he wasn't coming out of that prison vertical. And yet, if you these are the words he wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. 
See, Paul could look beyond the, the harsh surroundings of the Roman prison. He could look beyond the likely outcome he was facing and see the eternal result that awaited. Joy is also the reason that the angels sang that first Christmas. It's the reason we sing and rejoice at Christmas as well. Because if you stop and think about it, the circumstances weren't actually very happy, were they? I mean, it's a, it's a young, young maiden, married, but pregnant knew, through nothing that she had done. She's just traveled by donkey several hundred miles, and when she got to the little podunk town of Bethlehem, there isn't a place for them to stay. The only place they can find to literally crash is a barn. And that's where she goes into labor. I know that's every woman's dream. Right? No, not at all. In fact, there's nothing happy about those circumstances except for the fact that there's a baby. And then it gets worse, right? The king finds out that this baby is the one that's fulfilling prophecy and that he's going to be a king and he orders all babies in that town killed. And they have to flee for their lives and leave for a foreign country. There's nothing happy about that. And that baby, well, he was born for one purpose. He was born so that he could die. Nothing happy about that either. And yet... There's a reason the angels sang. And the reason, there's a reason we rejoice because while the circumstances of the moment weren't happy, there is great, great joy at Christmas because God became like us. He entered our world. He came so that he could die and he did it so that he could die for us in our place. That's why we have joy. It's important to have that distinction, to understand what God means when he talks about joy. Because I'm pretty sure the words that we're about to hear from, the, from John the Baptist aren't going to make you happy. They weren't intended to. In fact, my, if you might have some, some reactions like indignation. What? I would never... You might do like a spiritual eye roll at him. You might try to kind of poo-poo, oh, well, yeah, of course, but I would never do that. But what John has to say this morning are, are important words for us so that we can find joy, even in this difficult thing that God talks about. So listen, not for the immediate burst of happiness, but for the message of God that gives us the gift of joy. We read from Luke chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. John, so this is John the Baptist, said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts, two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. 
Even tax collectors were coming to be, came to be baptized. Teacher, they said, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So John, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's this quirky dude, right, who wears camel's hair clothing and eats wild locusts and honey. Kind of an odd, odd duck. But there are crowds that are coming out to him to be baptized. And did you notice how John greets them? You brood of vipers. Now maybe that doesn't ring super clearly in what, what he's trying to say. Literally, he calls them offspring of a snake. Maybe offspring of the most well-known, the most infamous snake. You know that, that serpent in the Garden of Eden? He's telling them, you are spiritual children of your spiritual father, the devil. I'm glad you're here. That's not what he's saying. And, and if you're looking for happy, those words aren't, aren't supposed to make you happy, are they? But they were intended to get attention, to get the people's attention, because John has something important that he wants to tell them. So he asked them, who, who is it that warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And, and I don't know about you, but I've, I've sometimes thought that that's almost a sarcastic statement. But I don't think that is. I think John is asking a legitimate question. Who told you? Because I know where you're not hearing it. See, the, the Jewish religion at the time had become one of, of mostly an external thing. It was mostly a surface level, a shallow, going through the motions kind of faith, right? We do the things that we're supposed to do. We check the boxes we're supposed to check. So that means we, you know, pay a visit to the synagogue, Give what we're supposed to give. When the, the festival comes around, okay, we do what we're supposed to do. But it's a lot of just going through the external motions. It's a lot about being seen doing what we're supposed to do so that everybody thinks we're good Jewish men, women, and children. The problem is that there's really no joy in that, is there? There's no joy certainly in, in the substance of them. It's, it's really all just about the externals. It's not about the message. It's not about what it means. It's not about strengthening my faith, sharing my faith. It's about doing the things I'm supposed to do so that I can say I did them. And that's why John warns against shallow, surface-level faith and repentance. And he warns them, the crowds then and the crowds now, this is a, a dangerous thing. It's probably more insidious, more dangerous than, than this outright thing that causes me to lose all my faith. It's this slow apathy towards where I just kind of do what I'm supposed to do because otherwise somebody's going to ask me about it. But I figure, you know what, I'm good because my parents, they were faithful and dedicated Christians. And they went to church every Sunday. And you know what, maybe you can even go way back that your great, 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 another hundred times, granddaddy was Abraham himself. 
John says, that doesn't matter. It's not about a who's your daddy. It's not about your family ties or name recognition. None of that is going to get you into heaven. And it's not about checking a few boxes and making yourself look good because God sees right through that and sees the heart. And it's not, did I, how, many, how many clocks did you punch on Sunday morning? Ooh, I, I've got quite a list. You should see my time cards, God. I really put in the time for you. God says, you're missing it. You're going through the externals just like they were back then. And that's why John spoke harshly. He spoke brashly, calling them a brood of vipers, children of the devil, getting their attention so that they, didn't, they weren't just comfortable going through life in a surface-level, outward-looking faith. Because John wants us to do something different. God wants us to do something different. God says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that mean? Well, last week we, we took a, a little bit of a look at what repentance is. Today we're going to do a little bit of a deeper dive, and so it's important that we understand what repentance is. I often simplify or summarize repentance as two turns. The first is turning to God for forgiveness. And the second is turning away from sin. See, we need to do that, don't we? Because the Bible is clear that we're irretrievably broken. That our relationship with God has been ruined completely. Unable to be repaired by us. We can't fix what we've done. We can't unbreak it. We can't get rid of our sin. We have been corrupted. Our hearts, our thoughts, our actions, our words are, are thoroughly corrupted by sin. But God, through faith, calls us to come to him and says, bring your faults, your guilts, your sins, and admit them, confess them, unburden them, lay them at the cross where Jesus forgave, forgave them and paid for them all. And we do so. We do that, right? Not because it makes us happy. Who here likes to admit they're wrong? I didn't think so. Not even the sarcastic guy this time. Nobody likes to admit we're wrong, right? Why is it such a chore to get it out of somebody? Just say you're sorry. I don't want to. So we admit that we're wrong. We admit that we failed again and again and again and again and again. And we admit that sin has has ruined, has corrupted our hearts and our outward lives. And we do it not because it's going to make us feel woohoo in the moment, but we do it because of the joy. The joy that God promises that when we bring our guilt, our shame, our sin, our baggage, when we bring it to him, he forgives it. That Jesus washed it all away. Right? What, did, what did we hear the prophet Zephaniah say? He's taken away your punishment. Jesus has washed you, cleansed you, forgiven you by his blood, by giving his life for yours on the cross. That is how, that is how repentance 
is a joyful thing. As I bring it to God and he forgives it. And right in the moment it may not feel great, but boy, this is a blessing. This is a good thing. Looking beyond the immediate, uh, to the relief, to the joy, to the peace, to the hope that I have. There's a second component of repentance, isn't there? There's the, the turning and coming to God and say, forgive me, Lord, out of faith. And then there's the turning away from sin. That's what John focuses on in these verses. If you notice, he, he goes on with a bunch of specific application, right? There were people in the crowd that came to him and said, well, what about us? How do we do this? What does this look like in our lives? And he gives them some very specific examples, right? Right? It says even tax collectors were coming to be baptized. Now, in John's day, in Jesus' day, tax collectors were a Roman, uh, Roman authoritative position. They could charge whatever they wanted. I'm, I'm legally obligated to charge you 20 bucks, but I'm going to charge you 25. Guess where the other five goes? Right in my pocket. And they had the backing of the Roman government and the Roman army. So who are you to say, that's not fair? It was a position rife and ripe for corruption and greed. And so what does John say? Stop overcharging. Stop cheating. Be honest. Have integrity. And the soldiers came to him, right? And they have special skills, Liam Neeson style. Special skills that can do some damage if you aren't careful. And you probably want my protection for your business, don't you? keeping the riffraff away, so maybe you pay for that a little bit. In some ways, they were the original mob, almost, that they had the authority of the, as a Roman soldier. What were you going to do, stand up to them? I don't think so. And John says, stop using your position, stop using your abilities, stop using your authority to try to get people, money out of people by intimidation and extortion. There are all kinds of specific examples that we could go into because everybody here has a different situation, right? So let's touch on a couple. Maybe it's that you struggle with greed or, or money, right? Worries that you're always kind of looking for an angle. How can I make this work out? How can I, how can I work this for myself so that it, it's a benefit, it's a bonus, it's a blessing to me? Or maybe you struggle with gossip, talking about others. Maybe you struggle with lust, pornography. John's point in all of this is something that's important as we look at how we turn from sin. It's our third takeaway this morning, that part of repentance is looking to the lasting joy instead of the short-term, and I put this in quotes, promise of happiness. The word promises in quotes because that's what the devil does, right? He promises, oh, this is going to be the best time ever. Just have an extra three or four or five or six or seven or eight or nine drinks. It's okay. Just click on whatever website you want. It's okay as long as you want to. It's all good. It's okay if you, you know, pocket a little extra as long as you don't get caught. Nobody knows. The devil promises a lot of things, but you know what the Bible calls the devil? A liar. And so when he promises these, these things, these, the short-term burst of happiness, 
Well, if you fall into that trap, you know what the, devil also, the Bible also calls the devil? An accuser. And you know that. If you've ever got given in, if you've ever bought into one of his promises for the short-term burst of happiness, what happens not long after? Ooh, there's guilt. And there's shame. And there's the devil, the one who made the promise and not, who's now saying, how dare you? How could you? That was horrible of you. So if the devil is telling you, it's okay, go click on whatever you want. Nobody will know. And you struggle with pornography. First of all, take your guilt to God. Because he has the freedom that you're looking for. He forgives your sin. He takes away your guilt. But don't just say, okay, good, now I'm forgiven. And and walk right back into the temptation that the devil has waiting for you. Put filters on your phone. Put accountability software on your computer. Fight. Get tough with temptation because the joy you have in forgiveness. Maybe your struggle is gossip. And you have a group of friends or there's a group at work or it's even just an online group and you have these certain people and boy, when when you communicate with them, Real quick, it turns into, did you hear this? Oh my goodness, I can't even believe it. So what do you do? Well, first of all, take your shame and take it to Jesus. Say, Lord, forgive me and know that he does. He took that shame as well as all the rest on the cross. And then watch out. If it's a certain group of people, if it's a certain setting The Bible tells us, flee temptation. Stay away. If it's a group of friends, maybe stop hanging out for a little while. And if they ask you why, it's okay to tell them. Not, you're a bunch of gossips. But gossip is something that I struggle with, and I'm really trying to avoid it. I want to use my words not to tear people down, but to build them up. If money... If worry, if greed, if looking for an angle is your struggle, what would John say? He'd say, take it to God. Take your weakness to him and let him strengthen you. And then maybe go back through that series we went through in November, that that whole thankful series that's a reminder of, of what God has done and has given to you. Maybe revisit those messages, listen to them again, or, or revisit those takeaways Make a list of all the blessings of our God. Make a a list of all that he has done for you, all that he has given to you, and pray that God would help you to be content with all the daily bread that he provides to you. And when you find yourself in that moment where you're comparing or you're coveting, get out. Don't sit there and go, oh, man, I can't believe they have. If only I had this and da-da-da-da-da. Get out. And put a list on your phone. We always have our phones with us, right? Put a list of things that you are thankful for, your top ten. And when when you're struggling, pull it up and pray right then, right there, Lord, help me, strengthen me. I give you thanks for this and for this and for this. See, God wants us to be tough to get tough with temptation, to look beyond the immediate moment 
and find joy in repentance. John's message was different. It struck a chord with the crowd then, as I pray it does with the people today. People understood this was a message of, of substance. This was a message from God. And so they were wondering what we find in the next verses of our text. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Talk about temptation. Hey, are you the one we've been waiting for? How about if we just pretend you are? Talk about the opportunity for fame. Talk about the opportunity for, for people knowing who you are. Even, even if you kind of went, well, maybe, you know, let me give you this subtle impression because then you'll tell more people who will come out here, right? I'm, I'm using this for ministry, Lord. John was very clear. I'm, I'm not the guy. I'm not the Savior. I'm not the, the Messiah. I'm just the guy who's pointing you to him, getting you ready for him. John recognized something very clearly about himself. It's something that he wanted the crowds to understand as well. He recognized, I am not even worth doing the lowliest job of the lowliest servant. That stooping down to untie the dirty, smelly, sweaty sandals of a guest. He wasn't even worth that when it came to Jesus. John recognized he's just a servant, right? He's a servant of the master who had a message and a job. And that job was to go out and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His job was to serve his master, his master Jesus. And so he went and he preached and he baptized in the name of his master, not in his own. I'm not doing this for me. This is God. And so when Jesus came, well, he would pour out the Holy Spirit, right? And with fire, and we, and we saw that at Pentecost. But his baptism wasn't physically or spiritually different than John's. It was for the forgiveness of sins. The only difference was that John baptized in the name of Jesus, who is yet to come. And Jesus baptized with the power and authority because he was God, the one who forgave sin. See, John wanted the crowds to understand God, to get a, a glimpse of, boy, John, you're a great guy. And he goes, whoa, 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 pump the brakes. I'm nothing. I, I want you to understand the beauty, the power, the majesty, the glory, the, everything about God, about Jesus. And so he used a picture earlier, and, and, and we'll use this to, to wrap things up this morning. John used the picture of a tree. So I want you, in your mind's eye, to picture yourself as a tree. How big? How many branches? How healthy are you? How much fruit hanging off the branches? Now picture Jesus as a tree. How big is that tree? 
how much fruit is hanging off of those branches, right? Causing them to, to droop because John talks about fruit, the fruit of repentance, the fruit of faith as being compassion, generosity, love, care. And that's what Jesus did. And yet, when God the Father picked up his axe and he came towards scraggly trees that barely had any fruit on them, like you and like me, Jesus begged, no, Father, not them. Take me instead. And God swung the axe of justice. And in Jesus' words, why have you forsaken me we see him being thrown into the fire that we deserved. And this would be a story of, of horrible, pure sorrow and sadness and injustice, except that tree came back to life. And it came back bigger and stronger and more beautiful than before. See, that's Jesus for you and, and what John wants you to understand, what Jesus wants you to understand is how much he loves you. That he chose you. That the immortal, infinite God chose you. That he was willing to pay any price for you. So that you would have joy with him forever. That's why prophet, the prophet Zephaniah could say he's taken away our punishment, right? And, and he delights in you. Not because you're so beautiful, not because you have so much fruit, but because Jesus does for you. And that's really the source of our joy. It's our last takeaway this morning. That Jesus gives me the gift of joy in my salvation. Our thanks... For this gift, well, that's the fruits of repentance, right? That's the turning to God for forgiveness and turning away from my sin and getting tough with temptation. God isn't asking for any kind of like heroic or super Christian things. He's not saying quit your job, sell your stuff, move to the middle of some foreign country where they don't even speak English and, and start an orphanage. If that's what you want to do, that's okay. But that's not what God is asking. What he's asking you to do is to live every moment of every day for his glory. Live every day, every moment for him. With your eyes focused not on, on what, how is this going to make me feel in the moment, but looking ahead. Because we have something bigger and better than right here and now. We have something bigger and better than this moment. We have, we have joy. We have joy in Jesus. Amen. May the peace of our God, which goes beyond our understanding, guard your hearts and your minds through faith in Christ Jesus.